Well, I must say, it was very nice of you to see me at such short notice, Dr. Fawn. I, I know it's only a stubbed toe, but nevertheless, it is quite reassuring to know that you're always on hand to help. Dr. Fawn? Dr. Fawn, are you all right? What's that, Marina? Oh, good grief! Uh, Captain Grey, where did you come from? What? You've been here all the time. Oh, I see what's happened, yes. Uh, it's quite interesting, actually, Marina. We've arrived on Cloudbase during the point where Dr. Fawn and Captain Grey don't actually have voices anymore, so I suspect you should get on with them quite famously. However, yes, it is a bit unsettling, isn't it? Just, uh, just seeing them standing there, not saying anything. Tell you what, I'm just going to set the old randomizer going here uh, to see if we can come up with something that isn't quite as unsettling as uh, awkward silences and... Uh, and creepy stairs. Right, let's see what we've got. Ah, well, I think mission accomplished there. We have at least an interesting episode, if not a good episode. Here's Space 1999, Space Warp. So one of the um, most interesting things about this episode, uh, certainly the most notable, is that this is one of three episodes of Space 1999's second season that was credited to a writer by the name of Charles Woodgrove. Now, for those of you who don't know, Charles Woodgrove is actually a pseudonym for Fred Freiberger, who was the producer of the second series of Space 1999. Uh, he had also produced the second and uh, uh, the third and final season of the original Star Trek, and uh, there was another show that he oversaw the last season of production on. I want to say The Wild Wild West. I could be wrong. Um, so the way I, I see the three Charles Woodgrove episodes are... These are Fred Freiberger's showcase for everything that the show should be. This is like his vision for for the path this concept should take. And in that sense, these three episodes are very revealing. Um, I know most people hate them and uh, and point to them as being like you know a defining symptom of everything that was wrong with the second year. I kind of find them varied enough that that isn't necessarily the case I find his first script The Rules of Luton is absolutely terrible it is just a disaster from start to finish there is almost nothing redeemable about that episode except for one scene which we'll talk about if we ever get there then there was The Beta Cloud which is one of my absolute favourite guilty pleasure episodes of any television show ever I find it spectacularly entertaining and then we have this episode which is kind of somewhere in between it has a lot of the uh, the so bad it's good elements of the beta cloud there is also a bit of uh, a bit of the sort of boring and extremely dumb parts of, uh, of the rules of Luton but I'm going to try not to, uh, to talk too much about those other shows in context with this one we'll just focus on this as its own thing for now. We'll talk about the others when we get to them. Moonbase Alpha calling Commander Koenig. This is Moonbase Alpha calling Commander Koenig. Come in, please. Commander Koenig, come in, please. Go ahead, Alpha. Why did he take so long to answer her? It's like, she called She called him four times. Was he just ignoring her today? Oh, no, no time for, for an explanation. We are, we are deep in trouble already. We're going through a space washing machine by the look of it. This is the space warp of the title. The shot of the moon going through the space warp is, is impressive. Uh, the live action shots of the uh, 
the Alphans kind of being thrown around the place are... I don't know, they're passable. It's, it's always kind of embarrassing when they they just kind of spin the camera around all, all over the place, but... I don't know, this is kind of... kind of impressive stuff. And a lot of these visual effects were, were then reused in... Uh, in other productions. They turn up in various uh, films and uh, television shows. I think this... This shot of the moon going through the spacewalk was reused in uh, the Leisure Hive in Doctor Who, I think. How long before you can restore full power? I'll give you a time as soon as we locate the source of the trouble, Mr. Carter. But straight away, this episode has made a very smart decision, I think. And um, it's unusually and unusually intelligent for the second year to to turn all the lights down they've got a, a power problem so straight away that those bright white corridors down which the monster stomped in uh, the beta cloud are now in in sort of gloom and that is going to be much more effective uh, when this episode mon this episode's monster starts lumbering down the corridors. Oh, it's no good, John. I just can't get a fix on them. Now, this episode is the first of uh, the double-up episodes that we have reached on the randomizer. I think there were eight of these in the second season of Space 1999. What that means is, the double-up episode, they were shooting two episodes simultaneously. In one episode, uh, Martin Landau would lead the cast, uh, and in another episode, Barbara Bain would be the the star and the rest of the cast were kind of split between the two stories so in this episode we have Koenig and Tony off the base and uh, even though Maya is the focus of this episode Catherine Shell is about to be written out because those three were off filming A Matter of Balance at the same time as this episode was being made and uh I don't know what the the problems were behind the scenes that meant they had to be shooting two episodes at once. Maybe it was it was um, more cost effective. Maybe it was more practical. They did have a lot of people, a lot of characters in the second year. Can be dangerous. Put me in restraints. I know a lot of people like that moment. Um, oh, poor Maya. I must speak to Eagle One. You have to tell her, Alan. Tell me what? They're not in this week's episode, Helena. You're the star. This is a double-up episode. In a way, though, I do... I do kind of like the idea of the double-up episodes because it means that it focuses on certain characters more. Uh, unfortunately, we, it does mean we have uh, regular characters suddenly not around or making excuses for why they're not there. I think in A Matter of Balance, the, the episode that was made simultaneously with this one, Helena cries off because she's she's monitoring some plant samples or something, and it's like... By the, the final pair of Double Up episodes, you have uh, Dorzak and Devil's Planet being made together, and Devil's Planet is just Martin Landau with, like, a few of the Sea Squad um, regulars one of whom was making their first appearance the in that episode. So forgive me for prescribing, but you need some rest. I'm recording this episode just a few days after 
the passing of Xenia Merton. Uh, I'm recording this on... Uh, hang on, hang on, I'm not sure of the date. What's the date today? It's Thursday the 20th of September as I record this. Um, so Xenia passed away on the 14th, just the day after Breakaway. And... And I always really liked Sandra as a character. It's um, such a shame that she, Xenia felt she had to leave the show earlier on in the season, but it's so great to see her back for this middle section. Um, and what I especially like about Sandra, aside from Xenia's performance, which is always just so lovely, is that Sandra felt the most realistic, I think, out of all the regular characters. In the second season, she was she was more of an extra. She was never involved in any of the comedy stuff. Um, but she wasn't, like... She was never the focus of any of the stories. So she wasn't presented as, like, you know, the brave, dashing hero that you would traditionally get in an Anderson show. She was scared. She was frightened, like a normal person would be in a lot of these situations, especially as you are... Uh, confronted with this uh, fairly tatty-looking monster costume as Helena has just been, she felt the most realistic because her responses were were the kind of responses that you would expect a real person to have in those situations. She's not trained to, you know, face off against all sorts of alien nasties. She's just there to to press buttons and collect data. Thank you, Petrov. That's your last appearance in the series. Your uh, very brief cameo, and you're gone. Um, and I remember there were moments where Sandra was brave, and she did step up, and it was like, you know, it was brief. She wasn't brave for very long. But, um, yeah, she felt she just felt like the most relatable character on the show. And Xenia being just this small, um, timid character... You just wanted to protect her all the more, so that when, for instance, in full circle, when she's you know running for her life through the forest um, from the cavemen, uh, you just wanted to protect her and make sure she was okay. She was easily the most relatable. She was easily the most human character on the show, and that's why I love one of the reasons I love Message from Moonbase Alpha, the thought that she was the last one off the base, that she gave the final final uh, message back to Earth. And I never had the chance to meet her, unfortunately, but I've heard so many good things about her. Um, yeah, Xenia, you will be missed. But we will always love you, and we will always love Sandra. Why I turned into some kind of a space creature. Look, I'm all right, but there's no telling what she might do. She's already been doing it. Alan's orders are to kill on sight. Oh, poor Jeffrey Kassoon. I know I said uh, in Journey to Wear that I wasn't a huge fan of Dr. Ben Vincent, but to be fair to him, he isn't being given particularly good material to work with, especially that line. How about that derelict? Its power pods could be the same as ours, and we might be able to use its fuel store if it's got any left. Yeah, you never know. We could get lucky. What have we got to lose? Yeah, that's a, a very real turn-your-brain-off part of this story. It's just, yeah, alien ship... Uh, we'll probably be able to integrate their systems into ours very easily. No, no problem. I mean, you know, they call it alien, but, you know, it's not really alien. 
Okay. But how much to be used? Too little, no effect. Too much, death. Let's hope this is the correct dosage. Yeah, and it, it could equally not be the correct dosage, in which case Ben has an actual point, but oh, I'm sure it'll be all right. When Maya was delirious, she was hallucinating about Psychon, that her father was still alive and that she had to save him. Now, this episode was uh, was bolted together with the Metamorph and released as a, a movie in 1982, 1983, as part of the Super Space Theatre range, called Cosmic Princess. And it's it was one of the few such films that I actually had on tape as a kid. Um, and to a certain extent, these episodes work quite well bolted together. The reason for Maya's delirium at the start of this episode, which in this episode is never explained. In the film, it's kind of passed off as she's delirious with shock from losing her father and her planet. That makes sense. They go through a space warp in this episode, just as they did at the start of the Metamorph. That makes sense. She turns into a Psycon who I think is meant to be her father in this episode. It's not play, played by Brian Blessed. But they, th that film was uh, was far more cohesive than certain other films in that title, uh, that range. I remember Journey Through the Black Sun is not an especially effective film. Stun guns, tranquilizer darts, and she's still on her feet. Oh boy, what do we do now? I suppose the central concept of this episode is is quite smart. You have this creature, or well, this woman, Maya, who can turn herself into all sorts of other things. What would happen if she just completely lost control and went nuts? Um, but it, it just descends into the usual sort of Saturday morning dumb action fare. Which is entertaining up to a point, but it's a long way from the highs that this show had previously enjoyed. And here we have poor old uh, Jack Claff, who uh, was a security guard in the second season, I think in, in three episodes. Uh, oh, he's just been felt up by the monster, actually. Um, yeah, the actor playing the monster just grabbed him by the backside and threw him into the wall. And Jack Claff uh, is a really good actor. And he, he is trying his best in this show but this show, again, much like with Jeffrey Kassoon, doesn't give him a whole lot to work Mr. with. Connor, we've been attacked. By yeah, okay, I figured that. Where's it gone now? In Eagle Four. Now, Monster Maya has escaped onto an eagle. And although this is objectively a terrible episode, even though I have a soft spot for it, this sequence coming up is not only one of the greatest Space 1999 moments, it's one of the greatest model effect moments in Jerry Anderson history. I love eagles. I just love... I could watch just... If I was on Moonbase Alpha, I would just be in the eagle hangar bay every single day watching these beautiful things being moved around. Unfortunately, I would not be there on this day when Maya does this. Launches her eagle while it's still in the hangar bay. This is so cool. Can't we stop it? No, we have no control over it now. No, no, don't try to stop it. Just let the effects take over. Look, oh, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And look, it's on its back. It's on its back. Oh gosh, the destruction. 
Oh, the flames. The explosions. Oh. And there's a few uh, old first season props in there as well. There's a rescue eagle pod and uh, a laser tank. And again, this is uh, sort of pushing the pushing the bounds of credibility, I think, here, where the entire eagle hangar bay is in flames and we send in two guys not to put the fire out, but to rescue Maya. Um, I, as much as I love Maya, I would have to say she would not be a priority at this point with all that fuel down there. Well, Maya can't hold this form for longer than one hour. We've only got to wait another 15 minutes. I love that, that bizarre time limit on her abilities. It was like, within an hour, on the dot, you can set your clock by it, that she would change back to normal. And uh, I think that was introduced in The Rules of Luton. So again, this is Fred Freiberger revisiting his own continuity. Uh, it's very, it's rather charmingly random. Uh, and it was as relevant as much as it wasn't relevant because there were many times where she held her form for longer than an hour. We can stop that blockage. What if it's not a blockage? What if it's natural tissues performing a natural function? Let's find that out. Yeah, let's just carve her open. We can, uh, we can always sew her back up again. It's fine. Heart fibrillating. Pulse erratic. Said a voice belonging to no character in this room. I love it when that happens. It's like they have to throw in some kind of plot point but there's nobody on screen to deliver it, so just have a random off-screen voice deliver the, the problem for you. Okay, so Maya has now turned into what I think is meant to be her father mentor. Um, it's clearly not Brian Blessed. And I don't think it's even the same costume he was wearing before. And this could be some brother or distant relative or something. And although it's, this fight sequence is very cheesy, uh, I do find a lot of the fight sequences in this era of the show were very well directed because there's a lot of frantic action. Uh, and I don't know if it's slightly sped up or not, but it, it's not really giving you time to think about how stupid a lot of this looks. And speaking of stupid, we have another transformation into this uh, this monster. Now this monster was uh, was used several times in the second season. Uh, they would make subtle little differences to it each time. It was first introduced in the Beta Cloud, uh, where it was stomping around the base, looking very sorry for itself, and then it was reused again in the following episode, A Matter of Balance, where they gave it horns because that makes everything different. And now, this is the episode immediately following A Matter of Balance, and our favourite monster is back again. Um, only now he seems to have lost the horns and has a lot more shoulder hair than he did before. Uh, and as cheap as it was for them to keep reusing that costume, I find that monster just so adorable. The just big dopey eyes, the fact that he can't move his mouth, the fact that there's the hint of what looks like a tongue in there, uh, and just the, the body language. I mean, Dave Prowse played the monster the first time he appeared, and he just plods around the base looking so sorry for himself. 
He's really endearing, actually. Uh, yeah, more love for the, the monster, I think, please. John, that power room is amazingly sophisticated. It's way beyond our capabilities. You'll just have to take my word for it, because we can't afford to show it. Um, this is where a lot of the, uh, the episode falls down, is with these scenes with uh, John and Tony... I mean, here they are, just puttering around with what look like old camera roll, uh, camera film roll cans. Alpha, Beta, Nun, Scout, Cruiser. And here we have easily the worst alien in the entire history of the show, possibly in in television history. Into a space warp. I don't even know what they were thinking with this. It's uh. For those of you who have not seen this episode, imagine someone has uh, has painted their face bright red, uh, and then I don't even know how to describe what they're wearing, but it looks like a a Halloween sort of pumpkin mask made out of red perspex that he's put over his head. This is like. This is like, you know, a, an overworked single mum has made a, a Halloween costume for their their annoying kid and has set out to make him look as stupid as possible without him realising it. It's shocking. And this whispering is just... I again, this is just like a, a perfect storm of awful... I mean, he has a he has what looks like a moustache, only one side of which is painted. Um, oh no, I, I I know that's a an odd thing to highlight, but uh, he has a white streak of paint across the bottom of his nose. Um, oh dear, this this poor actor, whoever this was, yeah. I have great sympathy for you. I hope you had a good life because you clearly hadn't didn't have a good day when this was filmed. I have ejected my crew members out into space. And at the conclusion of this report, I will join them. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye well, now. If it's any consolation to him. We know how he felt. Yeah, we want to throw ourselves out into space at this moment, too. Come on, get back to the action! 26. Oh no, we have to review the little things. The correct coordinates will be obtained by connecting the space warp locator to your computer's navigational programmer and the Menon's computer activated. The rest of the procedure is relatively simple. Oh yeah, sure. Relatively simple to uh, link two pieces of technology from two separate civilizations using advanced algebra. Just oh, I cannot get my head around this. Um, this uh, merging of the two technologies. It is so unlikely. It is so naff. So uh, John and Tony are now hunting through the wreckage of the. Uh, is it beaten on the spaceship looking for this 
space warp locator, which um, supposedly is going to get them home. However, I have to question its effectiveness, considering that the people who built it did not detect this space warp that they then flew into and got themselves all killed in. However, we are, what, 15 minutes from the end of the episode. We've got to try and start wrapping things up now. Now, the music, most of the music for this episode was specially composed for this episode. Uh, it made its first appearance in the Beta Cloud, a slightly earlier episode. But it's one of my favourite scores from the series. It perfectly accentuates the action on screen. And this is one of my favourite bits of music. I don't know why. Because it's just a few... It's just a short cue. Uh, I think because it it's the music that was playing during the moment when Koenig sees the aliens in Command Center in, uh, in The Bringers of Wonder, which was the first Space 1999 I ever saw. So it's kind of nostalgic for me in that sense. But I do... I do love the Derek Wadsworth score for this There's second season. store like a camel stores water. Yeah. Yeah, oh, let's just keep up, keep on making up nonsense. For an hour. Is the alien wearing shoes? Because it looks like the alien is wearing shoes. Oh. Anyway, we now have another ticking clock situation because Maya is out on the lunar surface and has turned into a monster that can only survive for an hour because, you know, as soon as the hour ticks down, she's dead. Its pace has slowed. Right. Slowed, huh? Must be running out of air. Or it could be that the, the shoes are sort of getting a bit tight on its feet. We have link up. I'm going to activate. I mean, considering we can't even get a, a PC and a Mac to talk to each other, and I... I struggle sometimes even to get my iPod to connect to my computer. How does this how can this space warp locator thingy be? Got all the coordinates. All we have to do is understand them. That should be the easiest thing. What are you talking about? You've done the hard part. You've managed to get a piece of alien technology to interface with your systems. It's in English. You, you, it's using English you know, your numbers you're familiar with. Oh my god, I don't know. Anyway, here we have uh, the Maya monster is uh, slowly galumping its way across the lunar surface, being followed by Helena and, well, I was going to say Helena and Alan, but actually the watching this in HD, it's, it's obvious that they are not the ones driving the moon buggy. Anyway, what's meant to be Alan and Helena are chasing the monster down in their moon buggy. And this sequence just looks amazingly cheap. Oh, they've just run into the monster. Um, God, there's an extra in command center who's doing some... Uh, a lot of I'm scared acting with her teeth. Uh, see, there's Xenia Merton. She can look scared for real. You don't need anyone else to look scared. Just get Xenia. Uh, and I just wonder... I. I as much as I said I like this episode, I'm looking at this image of um, these stuntmen, you know, knocking themselves out on this suddenly very cheap looking lunar set with a very cheap monster 
I'm remembering some of the really beautiful, impressive visual shots from the first season, and this just doesn't compare. Although Alan's helmet visor did just open there, that was always a problem in uh, Space 1999 lunar fight scenes, right from the very first episode, I remember. It's just, um, how did we get from Breakaway, Black Sun, War Games, Arcadia level of quality down to this? Um, I don't want to say lowest common denominator stuff, but it is so far away from where the show started. But now we have another problem. Alan's uh, spacesuit backpack air supply thingy has sprung a leak somewhere. Um, Helena's going to very slowly amble to the rescue. And I know it's low gravity, but she is really taking her time over this. In fact, she has only just now reached the moon buggy. It's, uh... Come on, lady, it's Alan Carter. We need Alan Carter. He's like the man, you know. Aha, but it's okay. We have a piece of sticky tape to cover the hole on the back of his uh, tank. And we have an emergency oxygen uh, cylinder has just been attached, which will give him all of all about three breaths tops. It would have been handy if you'd had an, an eagle in the air already, wouldn't it? If it transforms into Maya, she'll die instantly. Helena's spacesuit visor is looking very tatty. I know she's just been in a fight, but uh, I imagine the spacesuits around this time would have seen a lot of wear and tear. One. Two. Two. Five. Five. What? Six. Counting with Tony Vadeshi. Seven. Four. Yeah, it's uh, One down to blue. it's it's no Captain Magenta level of bad counting, but it it is up there, I think. So once again, they've brought the uh, injured but still potentially very dangerous Maya monster into the medical center with no restraints and no security guards on hand to stop her if she uh, if she goes mad. But it's okay because. John and, and Tony, they're on their way home. It's not terribly exciting. In fact, I think this episode really... It kind of suffers from being a double-up episode. Uh, the John and Tony stuff doesn't work. It's not necessary. It doesn't add anything to the plot other than the vaguest of you know, oh, will they get back concerns, but it's not really hugely important to the story. So I think I think the Maya stuff, the Maya on the loose stuff works up to a point, uh, probably needed to be the whole focus of the episode because this, uh, you know, connecting the two ships just like that is both boring and kind of insulting to the intelligence. Well, that's something. At least we've got full power again. Alan, look. Although, 
having uh, having Tony and John away from the base, it gives Alan the chance to be a commander. It gives him the chance to be the star of the show. And Nick Tate is more than able to do that. He is, he is a really good actor in this show. Alan is so likeable. And it's amazing that they were considering getting rid of him for the second season. That was just... Space 1999 without Alan Carter would be a very sad affair. As it was without Sandra as well. The restraints. You don't need them. But I'm dangerous. Not anymore. All lies signed stable. Fever's gone. We don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know what caused it in the first place. Like I've been riding the tail of a comet for days on end. We all do. Well, it's an oddly specific thing to feel. Um... Yes. I want you to tow the derelict back to Alpha. Oh, we are going to save the derelict. That's good. Very often in this show, I mean, not that it's ever going to come up again, but very often it was just. Uh, How come you got the derelict in tow? It's a long story, Alan. Junked. Anyway, that was Space Warp. And as I said at the start, it's kind of like middle of the road uh, in the Charles Woodgrove trilogy. Entertaining enough in a so bad it's good way a lot of the time, but the. Uh, the stuff with John and Tony, absolutely terrible. Nevertheless, we're done. We're through. We're out of here. Bye-bye.